From Steel Valley Media, this is the Frosty Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Frosty Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Frost. With me, as always, Tony Perenni. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Google Podcasts. You can find us on Podbean. And now, as announced in the last episode, you can find us on Spotify. So there is no excuse to not be listening to the Frosty Podcast each and every episode. Tony, I'm excited. This was supposed to be our Las Vegas episode. We were supposed to be live on location in Caesars Palace. But unfortunately, uh, Due to COVID, we are in quarantine. However, we have a great draft recap. Uh, so, Tony, 30,000-foot view, what was your thought of the draft? Uh, it was definitely interesting this year, doing the virtual format. I, I think it ended up coming out really, really well. I definitely had some questions going in as to how they were going to be able to pull it off, especially from a TV standpoint. And I, I think ESPN, working in conjunction with NFL Network, uh, they, they really put together a good product. And if you look at the uh, the feedback on social media, it's pretty much overwhelmingly positive for um, the product that they put out there. And it seems like there weren't really any hiccups that any of us really noticed from as far as the teams went. And you're even starting to get a little bit of feedback now from GMs and coaches and, and scouts involved that, you know, they, they kind of like this being being at home with their families and being to see them this time of year rather than being holed up in the office for 20 hours a day. So uh, might lead to some good things down the line as these guys start to learn, you know, if we just kind of don't spend all our entire days in the office, this stuff can still get done and we can still put together a pretty nice roster. Yeah. Definitely might be some long-standing effects uh, from from the quarantine style draft. It was a it was a lot of fun. There was definitely something missing, uh, you know. And, and Vegas was supposed to be, you know, Bellagio fountains and all that. So I'm sure Vegas will get another nod here in the near future, where we'll be able to see that. Uh, so Tony, we're going to be talking a lot about draft and NFL news, and I think it's only fitting if we bring in your draft partner, Charlie Thurber. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. So I have to say, you know, I, I listened to the last few episodes there of the, the pre-draft breakdowns, the mock draft. Uh, you guys did a phenomenal job holding down the fort while I was out. Appreciate it. We had a blast, man, just uh, putting it all together. I think uh, both of us, I speak for both of us when I say we started in August, you know, scouting these players in the college setting and um, you know, through the NFL league, uh, season, just seeing, seeing who might fit where. And, uh, it was a great time. So great opportunity to, to be on the frosty pod and, and talk shop. Completely agree. And then when you look at putting it into a media form like this, where we pretty much decided to do this a couple weeks before we actually recorded our first episode. So I think the turnaround time we were, we were able to, uh, you know, put all our notes down, uh, get our thoughts in line and be able to put them in a podcast format for everybody out there. I think the, the way we were able to turn that around pretty quickly was uh, really good on our part. And I think it kind of lays some groundwork for us to maybe do this bigger and better next year. But obviously thank you, Derek, for the platform and welcome, welcome you back to, to your throne. And uh, I think, I think you've maxed me out as a uh, driving as <laughs> in that driver's seat. So uh, <laughs> I am definitely welcoming you back to take, take my original spot back. Yeah. Well, you know, it's good to be back. I've been out now for a, for a long time and uh, you know, finishing up some stuff at work. So now I got some time here for the rest of the summer, and we uh, we should be getting some more podcasts out, uh, getting into some special interest, non-football-related stories in the near future. So it's going to be exciting. But, Tony, I got to tell you, I have been waiting over a year for the news that broke only a couple weeks ago. Let's go ahead and, and, and set it off with a Gronk Watch button. He's the Gronk when he's out on the field. Hey, Gronk, I need you. This is Gronk Watch. We have Rob Gronkowski back in the NFL, along with Tom Brady, going to Tampa Bay. And so, Charlie, I'll start with you. What do you think the, the implications are now? Uh, what are you expecting from Tampa with Brady and Gronk on the roster? It's just 
crazy to think about uh, that this would all happen and the stars would align. And, and you look at Gronk's initial decision to retire, and it makes you wonder um, if they even said, hey, listen, you know, if Brady said, hey, listen, I'm out of here, you know, in a year. And, uh, you know, get healthy, get right, and, and let's team back up because um, it's just crazy how it all worked out. Tampa Bay is turning into the Monstars from Space Jam. I mean, Gronkowski, Mike <laughs> Evans, Chris Godwin, and, uh, you know, Brady's p- kind of playing that MJ role where he's just distributing the ball around. So um, it, it's going to be just purely uh, uh, showtime to watch these guys and their offense light up the scoreboard in, in Tampa. Yeah, you know, I think Brady has definitely lost a step over his career. I mean, he's he's very old at this point. But the one thing that he still does really well is he distributes the ball around. And with this many targets, he's never had this before. I mean, if you go back to, to the time where he had Randy Moss and that, I mean, he, he had really good receivers. But it's been a long time since then. And he's really been making guys like Julian Edelman, uh, you know, look look like all-stars every year. And, and as we've seen other other receivers go places that isn't New England, they tend to struggle. So it's hard to tell, you know, is is the receiver that good or is Brady just that good at working with that receiver? And with the tools that he's going to have now in New England, it is going to be incredible. The over-under on wins set by Caesars Palace was nine. Uh, the Patriots were eight and a half, and that was before Gronk. So it, essentially I think it makes Tampa an immediate playoff contender for sure. If not a Super Bowl contender, Uh, Tony, what are your thoughts? So I guess my question with, uh, with Gronk going there is, do we need to temper our expectations for Gronk coming off this, this retirement year? Because in going into the retirement, he hadn't played a full season since 2015. And you saw as he was uh, doing his retirement tour, he'd lost a lot of weight. He's going to have to put back on. I'm really, really curious to see how they're going to use him in Tampa because Arians and Leftwich down there traditionally do not use the tight end very much, especially in the passing form. So uh, this is going to be a departure for them to try and implement him into the offense. I'm, I'm really interested to see, you know, does that offense look like it did last year or, or is it going to be more suited to what the Patriots were doing? How much input is Brady going to have in into the the play calling because um, obviously the the low-hanging fruit comparison here is Peyton Manning going to Denver and in that instance uh, Manning had Adam Gase as offensive coordinator who was the first time ever doing that role essentially Peyton Manning was the offensive coordinator there and was installing his own offense and what he wanted to run I'm not so certain it's going to be the same deal here in Tampa because Arians is already an offensive guru what are you what are you guys' thoughts on that one? Yeah, that that's going to be a tricky thing because everything you see with Tampa, what they're doing, they're in they're in a win now. This is a a full court press for a year, maybe two, to get a Super Bowl to Tampa. I mean that 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 seems pretty obvious. And so I guess it depends, like like you're saying, you it, what's the best route? Is it to go with the Bruce Arians offense, which is legendary, or is it to go with with Tom Brady? Now I think. There's no way Tom Brady goes to Tampa if him and Arians haven't worked out a plan. Uh, and my guess is it's going to be a little more Tom Brady-centric than it is Bruce Arians-centric. Uh, obviously, I, I don't know, but that that's my thought. And I think this doesn't happen if egos were going to get in the way. Uh, so I don't know what it's going to look like. My guess is it's going to look a lot, lot more like, like New England, which was also probably a selling point for Gronk from Brady to say, hey, listen, we're going to be running a lot of stuff We as similar to what we did in New England. Uh, we're going to have the team ready. Uh, we just need that last piece. And I, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, going to your point of Gronk not being healthy for a long time and losing a lot of weight. I, I, don't, I don't know if we see Gronk in that same style of tight end that he was before. Um, I think we're going to see him split out a little more often into more of a receiver-type setup. Uh, but, Charlie, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think you guys bring up great points. Um, in New England, you know, kind of that authoritarian that authoritarian setting, um, just with Belichick and the way things roll, Brady's never had – you bring up a good point with the egos. He's never had to manage all these different talents in one offense. And, and you know, Mike Evans needs his – eight, 10 targets a game. Chris Godwin needs his eight to 10 targets a game. 
Uh, you know, you got OJ Howard there. What are they going to do with him? He's a first round pedigree guy. And now you have Gronk. So I do think Gronk kind of fits into some hybrid, maybe some sort of red zone role um, where he can situationally, um, you know, just be a mismatch um, in select times. I think you look at what Bruce Arians did with Larry Fitzgerald when, when uh, he came to Arizona to be a head coach and, and he infamously moved Larry Fitzgerald from, from the exterior on the outside into, into more of like a slot guy, played a little almost of an H-back role, and that's kind of helped Fitzgerald really extend his career. It's really the only reason he's still playing because if he were still on the outside, um, you know, he's, he's older, he's slower. So I'm optimistic that, that Arians can find ways to utilize Gronk um, and, these other, and these other talents. Um, but, but it's a curious thing because, you know, as you mentioned in New England, he didn't have to deal with the egos there. He didn't have to deal with, with players, you know, looking to set records or sign mega contracts the following year. And that's something that could be an impediment to them this year. Yeah, the tight end room is going to be interesting there because, as you mentioned, it, it makes the most sense if they just give him a very defined receiving role in this offense where he can just go after some of those mismatches. Because when you have talents like O.J. Howard and Cameron Brait also in the tight end room who are both very capable of tight ends, O.J. Howard was on his way to becoming one of the better ones in the league a couple of years ago before he got injured. And last year, Arians made him disappear with his offense. But if, if they're doing more of a Patriot-centric type of offense, then the tight ends are going to be very involved. And you have three really good ones there in Tampa. So obviously a lot of talent there in Tampa. And obviously um, – you know, they should already be Super Bowl contenders there, but they're going to be playing in a much tougher division than what Brady's used to playing in, in a year in year out basis. So let's move on here. We had some other major moves so far in the NFL. Uh, and we'll start with one trade, and that was DeAndre Hopkins, who went from the Texans over to the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, and Tony, we, we don't usually see guys like Hopkins move around. Um, you know, we get you get that franchise kind of kind of talent. They stick around for a long time. What do you what do you make of this trade? Well, Derek, we don't usually have GMs as inept as Bill O'Brien either. And, uh, <laughs> in this instance, he basically traded away DeAndre Hopkins for a pallet of toilet paper to uh, help with the COVID <laughs> crisis and uh, decided we're going to go a different direction. So this is a major, major steal for the Cardinals, especially. And Cliff Kingsbury's offense, where they're typically going four wide receivers every snap, uh, going to make it very difficult the way they spread the field there for uh, corners and safeties to really double up on Hopkins because of all the other athletes that are spread across the formation. I mean, it obviously has some other good receivers there already. Fitzgerald is still playing, and he's still savvy enough to make life miserable on DBs with his route running. Christian Kirk is really starting to – to come into his own there. And then you have also some rookies that they got last year going into their second year, Hakeem Butler, Andy Isabella, who can make a lot of issues for you. So that's going to help Hopkins a lot. Um, whereas I think it's going to take some coverage away from him. Obviously teams are going to have to worry about Kyler Murray uh, running the ball a little bit. And uh, Kenyon Drake showed, showed himself to be quite the threat of running back. So it does a lot for their offense. Um, and we'll obviously get into some fantasy implications of all this stuff later, but uh, if you're eyeing up some Cardinals, that's probably feel pretty good about that strategy there because I think they're going to be putting up a lot of points this year. It's going to come down to whether they can stop them. Uh, but the Bill O'Brien is just, he's the head scratcher in this one. Decided he didn't want to pay DeAndre Hopkins top receiver money, um, even though what, what they would have been paying him is pretty reasonable for who, is most likely the best receiver in the game. Uh, so he gets rid of Deshaun Watson's top target, and we'll see how, how Watson feels about that moving forward. This yeah. is absolutely highway robbery. I mean, Hopkins is, is the wide receiver one, the alpha receiver in football right now. And, uh, you know, they say, you know, he stated, you know, I didn't want to get into the contract negotiations, but yet you picked up David Johnson's contract in this trade. So, you know, David Johnson was was pretty dynamic a few years back. But now, you know, he kind of falls into that category of, of a running back who's making more money, way more money than the market demands. Um, so certainly that was kind of a cop out excuse. And uh, 
to only get a second round pick um, is almost embarrassing for a player of that talent. The, the Cardinals are huge winners here. Yeah, and, and what I'm seeing here has been a story out of Sports Illustrated that essentially Hopkins kind of manipulated this deal to happen. He knew that if he asked for more money that they would start shopping him around, uh, and O'Brien took the bait and and sent him out of Houston, which is sounds like exactly is what Hopkins wanted. So I uh, guess to go down there with Kyler Murray and, and Cliff Kingsbury and, and – get to see what's going on down there but uh yeah i'm with you guys a uh, real real weird move uh, and then you see what what they got in return it just doesn't make any sense at all uh and speaking of another big trade involving a wide receiver is stefan diggs goes from minnesota over there to buffalo and we start seeing as the patriots are starting to drop buffalo bills are starting to to rise uh, and and so charlie what do you make of this trade Really exciting for the Bills Mafia. I mean, Diggs is just an explosive, dynamic route runner, uh, just a tactician. Uh, he's been really fun to watch, uh, but he's also, you know, for whatever the reason, butted heads with management and the Vikings organization, and it was it was just time for him to move on. And uh, Tony and I spent a lot of time the past few weeks talking about Josh Allen as a prospect and, you know, his similarities to maybe a Justin Herbert-type prospect. And if someone can tap into his potential, well, now, you know, to have this deep threat, um, this true de facto number one receiver in Diggs, um, we're really going to see if he can step into his own and become a star and uh, take the Bills to the promised land. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see Diggs. Um, you know, the Bills already had really established that they're, you know, a defense first team. They have a great defense led by, you know, Tredavious White and, and, uh, and uh, Tremaine Edmonds there. But um, man, this could be this could be exciting in the AFC East. Yeah, the Bills have the best roster in that division right now, and I don't think it's particularly close. You know, I, I think in a couple years you're probably looking at Miami being up there with them, but uh, the Bills are just loaded at every position right now. Their line is extremely solid. Their defense is one of the tops in the league. They have a good receiving core finally. They have two good running backs and Devin Singletary and Zach Moss, who they just drafted. It's all going to come down to Josh Allen this year. This is the year you find out whether he can sink or swim as an NFL quarterback. Uh, there's a lot of people that are in his corner. There's a lot of people that, uh, if you're like me, are very skeptical of his success. He's been the least accurate quarterback in the league for the past two seasons, his, his first two. And accuracy isn't usually something that gets better with age. Um, and their schedule last year in Buffalo was not very difficult. And credit to them, they won the games they were supposed to win, as, as good teams do. But uh, this year's is going to be a lot more difficult for them, and I think we're going to really find out you know, what Josh Allen is made of. And if, if he can really step up his game as a quarterback prospect, then Stephon Diggs is going to completely take off. And if we're talking fantasy implications, I don't see any reason he can't be a top 10, maybe even top five receiver in this league. Yeah. And I think there's definitely going to be major fantasy implications from both of these trades. Um, but Stefan Diggs is a guy who has been, uh, you know, he, he struggled a little bit early on last year when, when there were some issues in uh, Minnesota in general, but you know, the, that Bill's offense is really getting the ball around. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see now moving on here. We have some some major movements uh, and some guys that stuck around in free agency. Uh, so first off, some of the guys that stuck around, Dak Prescott, franchise franchise tagged uh, back to Dallas. A.J. Green, uh, franchise tag. We'll, we'll have Joe Burrow throwing the ball now over there in Cincinnati. But Phillip Rivers moving from L.A. to Indianapolis. Uh, going to take over for Peyton Manning, Andrew Luck, and Phillip Rivers now going to be the quarterback out there in Indy. And then we also see a couple uh, movements that we thought was going to happen. Teddy Bridgewater going from New Orleans over there to Carolina. We'll talk about the Panthers in more detail a little bit later. Uh, and then lastly, Melvin Gordon, uh, when he came back, just wasn't quite the same guy uh, as the Chargers were starting to move on from him. Go, goes and joins Denver's backfield, uh, signing for two years. So, uh, so Tony, what uh, what do you make of these free agency signings here? Uh, the Rivers one really stands out to me. Uh, I, 
I've mentioned, uh, I think it was our second draft pod. And my prediction for him was that he was going to retire. I did not see him. Uh, I didn't see any team out there that was going to give him uh, the money to be a starter for another year, especially after how last season went for him. I mean, keep in mind, this guy got benched for Tyrod Taylor by the end of the season. He had a, a absolutely horrific season and was a lot of the reason that the Chargers were losing some games down the stretch. So, a lot of that could probably be put on the Chargers offensive line, which struggled. Uh, he's not going to have that issue in Indy. Um, it's going to have, it's only a one-year deal. So it's kind of a, uh, a one-year trial to kind of get them over the top because the rest of that roster in Indy is definitely ready to win. I would say they have the best roster in the AFC South right now. They're physical, their defense is ever improving, and they've got some good weapons for Rivers uh, to throw to there. Just a matter of him uprooting his 10 kids and moving across the country <laughs> for a year. <laughs> But it, it, I, I, guess, I guess I'm I'm skeptical as to how much better he's going to be than Jacoby Brissett. But with how good the rest of the team is, as long as he can just cut down on his interceptions that he had last year, this team's going to be in the playoffs. And I think they have the ability to make some noise. Definitely. I think when you look at uh, just the effect Frank Wright can have on a quarterback in an offensive system, I think that's appealing uh, for a guy like Phillip Rivers. I mean, you contrast what uh, – Nick Foles has done outside of Philadelphia in his career versus as to what he's done in Philadelphia when he was with Frank Reich as the offensive coordinator. Um, and hopefully, um, you know, we see Phil kind of kind of enjoy and finish strong with, with a team, like you said, Tony, that's really equipped to win now. I mean, they have some young weapons with Paris Campbell, Jonathan Taylor, Marlon Mack, um, and obviously T.Y. Hilton is a pl- big play waiting to happen. They drafted a, a future stud in Michael Pittman out of USC. So, he, uh, he has weapons, but he also has uh, offensive line protection, which is big. A coach who will do everything in his power. Um, and, you know, if, if he can't get it done with Frank Reich and his concepts, I think it is time to move on and, and hand the keys over to Brissett or uh, newly drafted Jacob Eason. All right, fellas, let's get into the draft now. And with this new model, we saw that, you know, we're used to seeing these war rooms where you just see a ton of guys around a table and uh, I imagine there's a lot of feedback going on. There's a lot of discussion. And I was I was kind of surprised as they showed the the draft room. Essentially, they're showing a head coach and a GM or you know president of operations. And there's really nobody else there. And I, and I recognize quarantine, but it's not really set up. Uh, you know, you look at like Belichick. He's got he's got one computer. Uh, I think he had two at one point. But you know, that's th- a lot smaller type of room. And uh, what what impact do you think that had on on the draft strategies overall there, Tony? I think it, it cleaned up the process for a lot of these guys. And as we're going through here, as we were trying to find the teams that really did well and the teams that really did bad, uh, there were a lot of teams that I thought hit a lot of their needs this draft and a lot more than normally goes in this in this scenario. And there's usually a lot more teams coming out of the draft that I feel like they did really poorly. They executed their plan bad. I, I can't can't really figure out what they were going for. And there's not a lot of that this year. So I think it really streamlined the process a little bit. It cut down on the overthinking that tends to happen when everybody's in the room together. When the GM's uh, staring down the owner from the other side of the room, tends to overthink uh, his selection when he's on the clock or maybe gets this last second input from his scouts that uh, might not be the best for him to use at that point of the game kind of just cut down on all that and they kind of stuck with their process and I think it led to a lot better drafting uh what what are you thinking on on that one Charlie I completely agree you know initially I was a little concerned when the the only real news release that broke about this was, was about Jerry Jones um and said Jerry Jones chooses to to draft on his own without anyone else in the room and I was like oh man he's gonna draft seven receivers like he's just gonna <laughs> he's just gonna go off the cuff on this and uh but really, everyone kind of followed that same model. Um, and, you know, I think they, they kind of followed how the model is meant to be. You know, they use the scouting department, and the analytics department to get and gather that information. And then they do what it's their job to do, which is make the ultimate decision. Use that information and make the right decision for the franchise. Um, it's their franchise. Um, and they're going to usually make the best decision for it. And I think 
you know, when you look at the majority of the league, I can't remember a year where I see so many teams who who have uh, addressed their needs so well. And let me just let me just follow up with the fact that from a fan standpoint, from home watching, it was so cool to see the insides of all of these people's offices and everything and see Jerry Jones on his yacht out there drafting <laughs> and uh, Chris Bauer to the Colts has a looks like he has a, a bar in his living room. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Gettleman's drafting from his attic like it, it was really, really cool to kind of see these guys as real people with like they make the pick and their kids come in and start high fiving them and all this like. I think that was a nice, nice personal touch that all these other drafts over the year just felt way more corporate-y. And, uh, you know, it's hard to avoid that, but I think it really helped paint these guys in the light of being real people like the rest of us just at home, stuck in quarantine. Yeah, you know, and I, I agree. And it, it was it was really cool, like you're saying, you know, the, the kids coming in and the, the dogs are coming in and out. And I think for a lot of folks, um, you know, with, with my job, I, I only work from home like a day a week, but... You know, everybody kind of working from home and you're on their conference call and your dog barks or your, you know, people's kids are coming in the thing. You're trying to like, oh, you know, get out of the screen, get out of the screen, you know, and to see that at these high levels, the same thing happens, you know, and like you're saying, it, it humanized everybody. Uh, and, and you kind of realize that, you know, these are big decisions that these guys have agonized over for months. And then you finally pull the trigger and the relief with with each one of these picks that must come has to be incredible. Uh, and then you get to see the that family side and the fan side come out to be like, you know, we, we really we nailed this pick. We like it. Uh, it it's, it's really a cool thing. So I'm with I from that standpoint, it was a lot of fun. Uh, but one thing that really has stuck out here is uh, over there in Arizona, Cliff Kingsbury's uh, set up there, Charlie. Uh, is that is that what everybody out there in Arizona is doing? Oh man, it looks like the guy landed a spaceship in Paradise Valley and uh, is, is parked there for a little bit. But uh, <laughs> can we just ask why his fireplace was on outside? It's uh, I'm here in Phoenix and it's it's 100 degrees outside, so I'm not sure uh, why the fireplace was uh, was blazing um, like he was in Minnesota or something like that. But what a view. Um, I got to give the guy props. Some people are coming out with hate and I'm like, that guy's got it figured out. You know, if there's, you know, if I'm an owner and I see my coach got, who has it figured out like that, making a statement, I'm all about it, man. So oh, winners win. And uh, that's a, that's a winning move right there. Well, Charlie, your, your house looks like that too, right? Like, that's just all houses in Phoenix. I imagine. That's how they all look. You know, most houses out here are made of glass. Um, and so, <laughs> You know, a lot of nat- a lot of natural light, uh, panoramic views. Um, you know, automatic auto- automatic retractable roofs um, and all that good stuff. So that's kind of the generic model. You know, it's a new city, so that's how they build out here. <laughs> well, listen, if you if he didn't have that fireplace on, nobody would know he had it because it was like in the ground. So you have to have the fireplace on, or or you're just gonna think like, oh, that's just a, the backyard, um, which which was an interesting setup too. Uh, so Gotta yeah, I think a little more when the cameras are on. Got to flex a little more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's dig into it here. And I, I think uh, first we'll go out there to Charlie uh, looking at, at your, your team, the Carolina Panthers. There's been a, a lot of movement around there, but w- what's your breakdown of their overall draft? I have to give their draft an A to somewhere between an A and an A plus. And uh, that's saying a lot coming from me. I've been pretty, pretty frustrated with this new regime um, and how they've come in um, and kind of decimated kind of the Panther tradition, you know, really the first group of, of Carolina Panthers being a new, new organization that um, really represented what it meant to win as a Panther, you know, Cam Newton, Keekley left, they let go of Greg Olson. All these things were really tough to stomach for me. And uh, I'm not over it by any means. But um, when you see a new regime come in and take hold, um, you really want to know that they're evaluating players correctly, um, that they're finding good value. And through the draft, you're able to see if they actually have a plan and they know what they're looking for. And and let me just say that um, I think they absolutely crushed this draft. So, you know, the player I really wanted to come out of this with was Isaiah Simmons, just a positionless, you know, weapon on defense. Um, And we can talk about him a little more later. Um, but for us to come out of the first three rounds with Derek Brown, probably arguably the best defensive tackle in the draft, um, the most productive, that's for sure. 
um, to come out of it with Yeter Gross Matos at the edge. Um, should have been a first rounder, fell to the early second. Um, massive potential off the edge. Tony and I both had him ranked as our second best edge rusher behind Chase Young. And then to trade back up um, and get a guy, Jeremy Chin, in the end of the second round, who I think will play that Isaiah Simmons role. Um, you know, when you look at the measurables, he ran a 4-4 flat, similar height, similar weight, had a 42-inch vertical. Um, you check the tape, and this this guy is the one I'm the most excited about to see in black and blue, just a just a true weapon on defense. He can play safety. He can cover receivers for being big. Um, he's, he's smooth. I think Tony and I compared his ceiling to like a cam chancellor, um, but he actually has a little more capability and coverage to do more than just cover tight ends. I mean, he can hang with receivers and um, address a few needs at corner and just went all in on defense. So um, I got to say it really moved the needle for me as a diehard fan and uh I am. I'm. I'm excited. You know, they they realize they can't build Rome in a day, but let's start with the defense. They went all defensive picks. Um, I can see where their head was at. We went athletic. We went long. We went um, explosive, and uh, we're gonna have a fast, aggressive, young defense um, that hopefully is ascending in the NFC South. You know, Charlie. One thing I always like to see on a draft board is one of my Notre Dame boys, a big Notre Dame fan. So seeing Troy Pride Jr. there, the fourth pick, 113th overall, uh, just know that I'll be I'll be rooting for the Panthers a little bit there this year. Well, Troy Pride, man, I thought that was a great value in the fourth round. I mean, you talk about a track guy, you know, 4-4, borderline 4-3 runner, um, high football IQ, looks great on tape. Um, you know, we need guys. He's going to start on day one. So we'll have a Golden Domer representing there um, in the NFC South and we'll need him, you know, against the Emmanuel Sanders and Chris Godwin's the, the wide receiver twos down there. And uh, I couldn't be happier with that. You know, I had him ranked higher than Damon Arnett who went in the first round. Um, so pretty, pretty fired up. Yeah. And you know, being a, being a fan there of, of Notre Dame, they play some good offenses every year and that defense has, has generally held up pretty well. The offense have been, has been the struggle. So Hopefully, uh, hopefully Troy Pride continues uh, continues the good work that he's had uh, for you guys. Now, Tony, over on the flip side there, uh, let's look at Cleveland. Uh, a lot of picks this year, and that's been, you know, they've been stocking up picks for a little while, but a lot of trades. Uh, so what was your overall take there, Tony? I thought they, they did a pretty solid job. Uh, if, I, if I had to grade it, I'd probably give it a B-plus to an A. I think they're getting rave reviews out there depending on the publication you know pro football focus loves them because all these picks were really analytically driven so um they're they're one of the top teams in their listings but it seems like everybody pretty much has them at least at a bb plus um you know, they, they did a really good job meeting a lot of needs and and got really good value out of good players that were dropping at certain times they didn't expect jedrick wills to be there with that first pick number 10 there was a lot of talk that they were going to be looking to move back didn't end up needing to because the the guy they had as their top ranked tackle uh, going into the draft ended up dropping right into their laps. And he's a guy who uh, played a lot of right tackle at Alabama, hasn't played left tackle before, but he's going to be transitioning over there. And the, the good part is that you have a, a very good um, ambassador to the Cleveland Browns, Joe Thomas, still around in the area who has already volunteered and already reached out to Jedrick Wills to start working with him. On, on his left tackle skills and during this time where obviously Wills can't meet with the team because of uh, the quarantine and because of the NFL rules. So he can kind of get a jump start from a guy who isn't really a coach on a team and a guy who did it at the highest level and is going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, moving on, that second round pick as well, Grant Delpit, is something to be excited about because coming into 2019, he was looked at as a top 10 pick going into this draft and then just didn't really have didn't really have a 2019 season that lived up to his 2018 season but it wasn't a bad year he won the Jim Thorpe award as college football's top defensive back as a, as a senior um, so it was bad by his standards but was not a bad season has some tackling issues he needs to clean up a little bit but he is very rangy he is all over the football and if, if he is uh, fully healthy, he was battling an ankle injury, high ankle sprain all of last year, uh, if he's fully healthy, that could be a really big steal for them there in round two. And then they just really 
did a good job getting value throughout the rest of it. Jordan Elliott in round three, Harrison Bryant round four, Nick Harris, a center from Washington. They got in round five. He was uh, being pegged to be going rounds three or four for, for most people. Like good developmental lineman there. And then Donovan Peoples-Jones, a wide receiver from Michigan, they get with their last pick in round six, who athletically has tools that are as good as any receiver in this draft. He just um, came from that Michigan program, which is kind of stuck in the mud offensively right now and weren't really able to maximize him. He needs to clean up some things, but his athletic profile is something that you should really be excited about. So I think they got some really good pieces here, you know, coming out of every draft as a Browns fan, uh, fans tend to get really excited about all of them and every draft they see is the best draft they've ever seen. Um, so I'd like to, I'd like to temper expectations a little bit. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm really excited about the guys that got here. I'm looking at this. I'm not sure it's head and shoulders better than the ones Dorsey was putting together in the past two years, but it's on par with those. And I think that's what you really wanted to see coming out of this. Not like, not like getting Andrew Barry back in the cockpit meant that, uh, we were going to be going back to the Sashi Brown days just because he was on Sashi's staff. This is definitely not a Sashi Brown draft, and I think we can all be excited about that. So one thing that I noticed, one thing I've noticed that's come up, you know, with with the Browns is this this pipeline essentially from LSU straight to Cleveland. Uh, you know, with two two draft picks here, we got Greedy Williams already in the backfield or the defensive backfield, I should say. Uh, so Tony, what what are your thoughts there on that uh, on that pipeline? Well, when they're the, the reigning national champions, it doesn't really hurt to poach a couple guys for, from their squad. And obviously you have some good receivers that have come from that program as well with uh, Landry and, and Odell Beckham. Um, you, you can definitely see a theme here uh, from the Browns brass as far as what they were targeting. It was all big programs and guys that had success and were athletic at those programs. You have Alabama here. You have two LSU players, you Missouri Washington from the Pac-12, and you have Michigan. You're really the only, only guy they drafted that was from a, a non-Power 5 school was Harrison Bryant out of Florida Atlantic. So um, definitely a, an approach that they wanted to hammer home is they, they wanted big-time success at big-time programs. And I, I think it makes a lot of sense. If you, can, if you can poach some players that have just won national championships, that might help you from not only a talent standpoint, but a culture standpoint as well. All right, and the last thing, guys, um, and I, I'm springing this on you because we didn't talk about this in our production meetings, but uh, I would be remiss if we did not talk about the Dallas Cowboy draft with how many Cowboys fans we have as listeners. We got to talk about it. Uh, so we talked about, you know, Jerry Jones drafting from his yacht. Everybody's a little nervous, you know, because what's Jerry going to do? Is he just going to go off of 40 times or, you know, how's he, how's he going to draft? But, it, it, you know, what I'm seeing is pe- people are saying Dallas did a really, really good job uh, with with their draft. And so, Charlie, I'll kick it to you first. Uh, what was your overall take of, of the Cowboys? I mean, I give the Cowboys a minimum of an A. They they really crushed it. Um, and, and credit to Tony, um, who this whole time has been saying, if C.D. Lamb is there at 17, Jerry is, is running to the board, running to the computer to send that pick in. Um, he's, he's been on this for at least a month pre-draft. So that was a great call by Tony. Um, but to put him in, in three wide sets with Amari Cooper and Michael Gallup is, is just scary. I mean, their offense made huge strides last year, what they were able to do from the sense of an aerial attack. They've always been able to run the ball, but now it's, it's, uh, they're, they're boasting maybe the best wide receiver set in the league, um, with how, with how healthy Amari Cooper ends up being and, uh, and how CD develops. So first and foremost, um, a young superstar there. But what really makes their draft stand out to me is the value in who they got to fill some other needs. Um, they ended up with two long rangy corners, which is what they want in that Dallas system. Um, Trayvon Diggs, especially, it, it was a first round talent. When you, when you watch him play DK Metcalf two years ago, um, he's able to go downfield with him, make plays on the high point. He's a former receiver, uh, Stephon Diggs' brother. And, and I think he's got an alpha mentality to be basically a better version of Brian, Byron Jones when he came out. And Reggie Robinson from Tulsa has that same kind of long rangey D-back um, ability. Um, but he, he's a little more raw, but he fits the system, good value. Um, and then, you know, they lost Travis Frederick this year to retirement and filled it in with another Wisconsin uh, interior offensive lineman with Tyler Biedas. 
Yeah, to add to that, and the, the couple of defensive linemen that they picked up as well, Neville Gallimore, I had very highly rated on my my board from Oklahoma. He's definitely a, a stout and quick run defender in the in, in the interior, a little inconsistent, but going to that Dallas defensive line, who has done a very good job developing defensive linemen throughout the years, I, I think it's a really good fit for him, and it's a really good fit for the Cowboys. And being able to get Bradley and Nye in round five as well, edge rusher, from Utah. This guy just scorched the senior bowl when he went there. Uh, a guy who is not, not going to win any awards for his athleticism, but he is just has a nonstop motor. He is quick and twitchy off the get go. And he is a terror coming off the edge. And I think uh, he, there's a lot of potential there for him to grow into a uh, situational edge rusher for them as well. So I, they really did a good job hitting a lot of needs here. I fully expected with C.D. Lamb dropping to 17 that Jerry wouldn't be able to uh, resist himself when the, the best receiver in the Big 12 dropped to him. And I, I was correct on that one. Um, but after that, they really did a great job hitting some needs. It's a, it's a good overall draft class. Jerry is actually um, – we can't, can't bust on him too much. This this makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I, I The whole reason we did this is so Jordan Pennell doesn't start hitting us with all kinds of hate tweets for not talking about his Cowboys. So we had to talk about Dallas. He owes us like five promotional tweets now for doing this. <laughs> he does. So Pennell, you're on notice. Five promotional tweets. All right. Uh, so let's get into some drafts winner draft winners and losers uh, so, Tony, we'll start with you. Who do, who was uh, the big winner of the draft here? Oh, there were a lot of good ones to pick from here, but I'd want to start with one of the teams right up there at the top of this, the team with the most draft ammunition coming into this draft, and that's the Miami Dolphins, too. So I don't know how many people out there were really following um, all the news going into this season and also into this draft season, but – they were really, really starting to sour on the tank for Tua no, uh, news and really looked like they were they were souring on him. They wanted to go Justin Herbert. Maybe they wanted to go Jordan Love. It ended up being probably the biggest, most well-developed smokescreen I've ever seen a GM pull off by Chris Greer. Because um, not only was he able to get his guy at pick five with Tua Tungavailoa, but he also didn't have to give up any picks to do it. He didn't have to move up at all. He completely um, got everybody entranced with the fact that he was going to take Justin Herbert. So great job by them. And then they just did an excellent job filling that roster with talent after that. You get Austin Jackson to be the left tackle in development for Tua. You get a good corner in Noah Igbenakwe at, at pick 30. Charlie, hopefully I said that right. Uh, there's a, <laughs> noticed a lot of, not a lot of analysts over the weekend avoiding saying it. <laughs> So I, I took a that shot. That was really good, Tony. That was really good. That's <laughs> there my we guy. Go. <laughs> they just did a good job from there, you know, getting a lot, a couple other interior linemen to add to that. Um, some some good players along the defensive line. They really wanted to to hit both lines. You could tell they want they want to build their team from the inside out, and I think that makes a lot of sense in that division. So really excited by where Miami was and the fact that they didn't really have to give up any picks in the process either. I think. Um, it's huge for them is it, you know, they, they still have a lot of ammo going into next year to add even more tools around Tua, and they're going to be in a very unique position where they're going to start to peak as that new England dynasty is starting to go the other direction. So I think they timed this up pretty well. So Charlie, how about you? What, uh, who won the draft? Um, my call is 100% the Denver Broncos. Um, if you're a Broncos fan, you have to be absolutely psyched. Um, Tony knows as well as anyone. I'm, I'm really high on Drew Locke, on his talent, just what he brings to the position. Um, similar playing style to Patrick Mahomes. It's, it's hard to compare anyone to Patrick Mahomes, but um, he certainly can wing it. And it's clear that John Elway um, identifies with that and is trying to surround him with weapons. So let's start from the top. He went with one of my favorite players in the draft, if not my favorite, Jerry Judy, um, at 15. Um, everyone's raving about the C.D. Lamb value at 17. And I think the Jerry Judy, the Jerry Judy value at 15 is, is equal, if not better. Um, this is the best route runner maybe ever coming out of college. He he reminds Tony and I both of Stephon Diggs, just his suddenness, his ability to get in and out of breaks. Um, he's going to really thrive across from Cortland Sutton, 
and you add KJ Hamler to that mix as just a deep burner from Penn State, who's probably a four-two runner. Um, you know, they're they realize the AFC West is a track meet. But the thing that separates them from the Raiders, who tried to do the same thing, is that they also met their needs. You know, they had a big need at corner. Um, Chris Harris Jr. is gone. They brought in AJ Boye, but they also brought in a guy I really like named Michael Ajamudier from Iowa. Excuse me for that tough name to pronounce as well. Um, but just a long rangey corner, played a lot of zone in Iowa, but Iowa's got a great uh, track record for producing these guys. Um, Desmond King type player here who can make pl- plays in the high point of the ball. I think he'll be better in man coverage than people realize. Um, he, they got Lloyd Cushenberry, who, who some people had going the late first round as an interior offensive lineman. They got him in round three. Um, they got Natain Muti, a great uh, mauling guard from Fresno State in round six. So they addressed their need there and then got back to the luxury picks where they took Albert O. Um, we got a lot of tough names. I, I'm not even going to attempt to say this one, but um, this is my this is my tight end number one. He was actually locks tight end at Missouri. Uh, all, first team all SEC as a sophomore. I think he had like 13 touchdowns. He ran a 4-4 flat. Reminds me a lot of Melvin Ingram. Gets to pair him with uh, Noah Fant. And then another guy in round seven in Tyree Cleveland, who I'm really high on. Um, very similar to Donovan Peoples-Jones, um, who went to the Browns just in that all the tools. Didn't quite put it together in college, but we saw flashes of him, um, unfortunately, burning the top off my Tennessee Vols um, year after year. So um, really excited to see just an electric offense in Denver. And um, it's it's unique when a team's able to meet their needs and add so many luxury picks. Tony, give me another one. Who else uh, Who else did really well in this draft? Well, we always have to go back to the Baltimore Ravens. It's like death taxes and the Ravens killing the draft. It's a, it's a story every single year. And um, you could just record this segment. We could replay it again next year because I'm sure it's going to be the same story. They, they haven't missed a beat since Ozzie Newsom stepped down from GM. They did a great job hitting all their needs. They draft for value. They have Patrick Queen, a linebacker. Ohio State's own J.K. Dobbins at running back to back up Ingram there and, and uh, probably take over the reins there in the next year or so. And just getting good players at every level there for that defense. Justin Matabike, defensive tackle from Texas A&M. Malik Harrison, linebacker from Ohio State. Two guys that the Browns no doubt had their eyes on but couldn't get to in time. Uh, Devin DuVernay from Texas. It's just another example of the 40 of the uh, of the Ravens just crushing the draft like they typically do. And, um, you know, they're they're a, a, a stalwart at the top of this list every single year. Charlie, one more. I got to say the Minnesota Vikings. Um, I think everyone was a little puzzled at how many holes they had going into the draft. Uh, but to come out of this with Justin Jefferson from LSU, who I have as a top 15 player, steps immediately into that Stephon Diggs role. And I think he's ready to produce highly right now. Um, Jeff Gladney is like a Jair Alexander type corner um, from TCU um, to get those guys in the first round, come back and get Ezra Cleveland from Boise state and Cam Dantzler in rounds two and three. Um, you come away with a starting offensive tackle who's, who's arguably a top five tackle in this draft and another corner who was a late first round pro- projection before the combine and Cam Dantzler ran a slower 40, but it re- reminds me a lot of like a, Josh Norman type, um, aggressive guy who made big plays on the ball, did not give up anything, um, including to Joe Burrow in the SEC, will probably start right away. Um, That highlights some of many holes. They have a lot of great developmental players on here as well, who we can see um, starting in the next two, three years and and, and, um, taking over for, for the current cast they have. All right, let's go flip side here and uh, back to Tony. Tony, who lost in this draft? Who uh, who really sucked it up? Well, a team that's near and dear to my heart, my, the Philadelphia Eagles, um, overall had a pretty decent draft, but their second-round pick, their selection of Jalen Hurts' quarterback uh, to back up Carson Wentz is one of the most, I don't like to say bad choices because it makes it feel personal, but it's one of the most bizarre selections I've ever seen for um there's definitely gonna be a theme here with who who our losers are i'm pretty sure i already know what direction charlie's gonna go with his um 
But Carson Wentz is 27 years old. You just re-signed him to a big extension that he's not even playing under yet. He got one more year on his rookie contract and doesn't even start his new deal until 2021, in which you're going to have five more years of him. And then you go and draft a second-round pick to back him up. The, the insinuation when you draft somebody in the second round, particularly a quarterback, is that you're drafting them because they have potential to be your franchise quarterback. You're not drafting somebody that high to be a backup quarterback. And if, if they're trying to go the Taysom Hill route to be the, the gadget player, you don't draft the guy that high either. You could have just as easily taken Lynn Bowden in the third like, uh, like the Raiders did, and at least that guy can play some receiver for you. Um, this this is completely puzzling. I, I know Wentz has had some injury concerns. I think a lot of them are a bit overblown. You know, obviously the injury he had in the playoffs that knocked him out was a, a concussion on a cheap shot. That's not that's not something that screams injury prone to me. And and you just committed all this money to him, and especially in a year where he just took a team um, that was so injury plagued, throwing to a bunch of guys that are pretty much just resemble our frosty podcast staff at receiver and got them to the playoffs and then gets knocked out of the game probably would have beat the Seahawks in that, that first round if he plays the entire game. Cause the only team that was more banged up than the Eagles at that point was the Seahawks. Um, so he conceivably could have gotten you in another round in the playoffs with all that. And then you don't even spend a second round pick to get him more weapons or to build that defense. Um, Obviously, you, you made some selections later in the draft, but they're guys that are going to be a, a little more on the fringe of making your roster, on the fringe of contributing this year, when so many good players dropped into that second round slot at pick 53. They could have gone receiver. They could have gone safety. They could have gone linebacker. Lots of good ones on the board and lots of guys that could have made an impact this season for you. And instead, you picked a backup quarterback. I, I think I think overall, the issue there is, you know, the Eagles have a diluted sense of what, what you can expect from a backup quarterback because of what Nick Foles did winning a Super Bowl. You know, obviously um, that was a one in a million shot of a backup quarterback taking the reins and just catching lightning in a bottle and running with it, winning a Super Bowl. But that cannot be the ex- expectation. Like if Carson Wentz goes down, your season is most likely going to be over. Just like if Tom Brady goes down, just like if, uh, Baker Mayfield goes down if Ryan Tannehill goes down. Like the expectation is not that a backup quarterback needs to win you a Super Bowl. So I, I think this was a throwaway pick here, and it's one that already has people in Philly on the sports talk stations and everything questioning what their thought process is on Wentz. Uh, so I think just their ability to inject that narrative into this draft is ridiculous on my part, and I think it makes their entire draft um, be overshadowed by this. Because the Browns had a shot at the Super Bowl with Baker in there. Nice. Um, <laughs> no, that's your that's your go-to guy there after Brady. He's like, ah, Baker. Um, <laughs> well, no, no, no. I'm, I'm trying to throw in just when your starting quarterback goes down, whoever it is, you don't expect to win. <laughs> right, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's fair. It just it just made me laugh. Um, Except the Panthers. We, we, we expected to win last year with Kyle Allen totally. So. <laughs> well, you can join Jacksonville, Minshew Mania. They were they thought they were on their way to the Super Bowl with Minshew. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, still Charlie, do, actually. right, right. Charlie, I'm afraid to throw it to you because I think I know who you're going to pick. And I'll t- I'll say this: as as a Browns fan, and you heard Tony allude to it too. You have you're a fan of two teams, right? So you're a fan of the Browns. But you know that season's going to end early January. So you have another team that you're a fan of, like for playoff time and, and for a team like it actually matters. Uh, for Tony, it's it's the Eagles. And for me, it's the team you're about to mention. And speaking of puzzling quarterback decisions, you, you can go ahead and, and tell us how bad we did. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to just to kind of rub salt in the wound here, but it, it absolutely makes no sense. A similar situation with the Green Bay Packers, um, who – Aaron Rodgers just signed a massive four-year extension um, in the end of 2018. Um, He's under contract through 2023, and they just draft Jordan Love in the first round. Um, And this is nothing against Jordan Love. I think he's got a lot of potential. But right now, you have a team who just came off the NFC Championship loss. They're a few pieces away 
um, from keeping up with a team like the the San Francisco 49ers. They needed some offensive weapons. Aaron Rodgers needed more protection. Um, you know, you needed to get maybe a little more edge rush on the defense, a linebacker. Um, but to go quarterback is a massive slap in the face um, to to one of the greatest who's ever donned um, the green and gold there in Green Bay. So I, I do like Jordan Love as a prospect. I don't have a problem with him going in the late first round. I have a huge issue in question mark with a team who is winning now, is built to win now, and, uh, you know, just slapped their franchise quarterback in the face. So it, it really makes me think, um, is Rodgers leaving? Is Do they know something we don't know? Um, because they went through – um, and they had more, they had around 10 picks in this draft. They didn't take one wide receiver. Um, what they needed to do was add speed. They needed a slot guy. They needed a, a field stretcher across from Devonte Adams so that they could take that double coverage away from him. They didn't do that. Um, they came out of the first five rounds, um, with a, with a running back who wasn't in the top 100 overall on anyone's board. Um, he had a great testing at the combine. But it doesn't make any sense with Aaron Jones coming off a monster season um, and then got a basically a glorified H back in round three that they probably could have gotten, you know, in round five or six. And it just doesn't make any sense. It's like they're trying to send a message to their quarterback. But if you're building for the future, a bad draft like this can really wreak havoc on an organization for years to come. Yeah, and this this one, as I, as I followed the Green Bay uh, beat writers and faithful it, it just it doesn't make any sense there was a lot of of talk all year about you know Aaron Rodgers and LaFleur not really seeing eye to eye and and, and everybody within Green Bay was like no, no no it's it's just rumors you know fake news but you know there's too much smoke for there not to be some fire there uh, and then to do this I mean you're you're basically telling telling Rodgers you know hey we're we're done with you right like the, I don't I don't see what else you take away from this draft this is a you know, hey, we we will replace you, and and here's your replacement. But this is like the definitely who wins in in this when you when you go this route. Like besides Jordan Love, who gets gets drafted and gets to go to a pretty good organization like the Packers. You know, Aaron Rodgers loses; he doesn't get any more weapons. The Packers are going to end up losing because of it. Uh, their whole franchise is going to get set back by a draft like this. Like looking over the picks here. Uh, they're the only team I'm looking at through all these drafts that didn't draft a, a single player that is going to contribute for you this year. Not a single one. Yeah. You draft a quarterback who's going to sit behind Rodgers, a running back that's going to sit behind Aaron Jones, and a fullback. Those are your first three picks. <laughs> I, 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 it's, it's just puzzling to me. Like, if, if you're done with Rodgers, trade him and, and start building some weapons for your new guy. Like, I don't – like, this doesn't solve anything. This is just mind-boggling. You're exactly right. You, you phrased it perfectly when you said who wins here, because, you know, if they really are lashing out at Rodgers, they're hurting themselves. You know, I mean, they they still need to win and to put, you know, you know, bring home the bacon, so to speak, and, and keep their jobs. And uh, this isn't going to help them do that. There are a lot of good players on the board. I wouldn't have been puzzled or mad if they took, you know, Patrick Queen at pick 26. Um, they need a middle linebacker. They just lost two, both signed the New York Giants. Um, you know, there are a lot of good offensive tackles. Um, something like that would have made a lot of sense. But also, this is one of the deepest receiver drafts we've ever seen. Um, they easily could have, you know, gotten some good players in round five. You know, John Hightower, who went to your Eagles, Tony, would have been an incredible fit for the Packers in round five. Um, so would have Isaiah Coulter, who went to the went to the Texans. And both of them have that small school feel um, that the Packers like to develop with their receivers. But um, you know, basically right now they have six receivers who are all the same person in Devin Funches, Mar Marquez Valdez-Scanling, uh, Equinemius St. Brown. Um, you know, Devontae Adams is not the same person, but you get what I'm saying. They're all six, four and above, and they have trouble separating. Well, thanks for all that great news there, Charlie. I really appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> it seems your two teams, Derek, have switched roles this offseason. Oh, <laughs> hurts. It hurts so bad. I was supposed to get a Super Bowl out of this. <laughs> so that's all the big news around the nfl the nfl draft but you know here at the frosty podcast we are a fantasy podcast at heart so let's talk about what are the fantasy implications that we see out of this draft um namely for for this year as our league is going to be drafting here before we know it. it's still a few months away but uh not too early to start really thinking about it 
Uh, so, so Tony, we'll start with you there. You know, what what fantasy implications do you think come from this? Uh, my number one takeaway is, as as I alluded to a little bit before with my fantasy nugget on the Cardinals, there's some teams that you definitely have to upgrade a little bit going into next year, I believe. And the other one uh, that really stands out is the team that Charlie mentioned, the Denver Broncos, with the way they loaded up with Jerry Judy, K.J. Hamler, uh, Albert O. I won't try the last name either. Um, but you add that to a, a repertoire that already has Cortland Sutton and Noah Fant in it. Um, and you add Melvin Gordon in a running back. I think the potential is there to put up a lot of points in Denver because they're obviously seeing that they're going to have to keep pace with Kansas City and with Mahomes on a week-to-week basis. Um, if, if it comes down to what you believe in Drew Locke, I like him a lot. I think that offense is going to put up a lot of points. So I think the Denver Broncos um, is an offense that you're going to want to look at quite a bit as well as the Arizona Cardinals. Those, are, those could be two of the more prolific, prolific offenses in, uh, in 2020. Uh, Charlie, what, what's your takeaway? My biggest takeaway is how are we going to sort through these timeshares? Um, you know, you're going to have, like you mentioned, Mark Ingram and J.K. Dobbins in Baltimore. You're going to have Devin Singletary and uh, Zach Moss in Buffalo. You're going to have Philip Lindsay and Melvin Gordon in Denver. Uh, you know, Daryl Henderson and Cam Akers in L.A. Um, and also on the offensive side, it's a timeshare as well. I mean, Arizona, Denver, all these teams are – Dallas, they have weapons at their disposal. So us as fantasy owners, how are we going to sort through, find out who's going to get the target share, who's going to get the goal line carries, um, and be a valuable and reliable fantasy player? Completely agree. And and, and if I was to put the the eye in the sky on one big name that I think is really going to show out from this draft class – it's good. it's going to be in that Kansas City backfield with Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, the running back that, that they drafted at the end of round one. Um, Andy Reid has already drawn some comparisons to Brian Westbrook for him. Um, they are very anxious to get him in there, to use him out of the backfield. Um, obviously, with the speed that they put across the field in that offense, it's very hard for any defense to load the box to stop the run. So the, the yards are always there for a Kansas City running back. I think he's going to be a guy that is really going to show up this year in his rookie season. For sure. And, and I'll add to that and say um, Henry Ruggs, um, you know, it's, it has nothing to do with who wins that quarterback job with Carr or Mariota or if they bring in Cam Newton, uh, which I hope happens. Um, John Gruden, I mean, and Mike Mayock, they drafted this guy to play that Antonio Brown role. Uh, they missed that role in their offense all year last year. And uh, they're going to feed this guy early and often. Um, as we mentioned, he's a complete receiver who happens to have Tyreek Hill speed. So, yes, he can take the top off the defense, but he can also take a crossing route, a slant route, an out route to the house. Um, he can hang up, catch the ball amongst traffic. And uh, he is the ultimate counter to the Kansas City Chiefs offense. And I'm, I'm fired up to see what he does this year. I think he'll be target number one in Las Vegas. It's funny that that whole division is fast now. I mean, AFC West is just a track meet between uh, Kansas City, what Oakland did, and what Denver did. Everybody is just trying to uh, score a lot of points. So, uh, if you like offense, make sure you uh, tune into some AFC West games this year. But just a piggyback off off of rugs there. Uh, there's so much receiver depth as we mentioned already coming in this year, and I think there's a lot of guys you can see contribute. Uh, right off the bat, I think C.D. Lamb is going to have some fantasy value. It's going to come down to whether he's a wide receiver two or a flex. Justin Jefferson with the Vikings should uh, should come right in and be be a wide receiver two for you. I would think slot in right where Diggs was uh, in that offense, and and also get a few more a uh, few more action, a little more action from the slot than what Diggs would have gotten. Um, Michael Pittman Jr. and in, in Indy, I think, is going to be a target hound for them. I think Jalen Rieger. In, uh, in Philly for Carson Wentz is a really good weapon there. They can use uh, similarly to how they wanted to use Deshaun Jackson. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of riches at the receiver position and a lot that I think uh, could be making an impact for us on our fantasy rosters this fall. Definitely. And, and uh, I'm going to stick with my bet on T Higgins. The guy is going to learn from the, his idol on AJ green. Um, so many similarities in their game and, uh, He's not going to be a guy that's really going to be rosterable this year um, in, in uh, traditional leagues, maybe deeper leagues. But, um, man, two, three years from now, that guy learns from one of the greatest to ever do it in A.J. Green. 
Um, I think his ceiling is as high, if not higher, than anyone in this draft from the receiver side. Absolutely agree. And I'll, I'll, I'll end with this for my fantasy take. I'll give a dynasty nugget out there if there's any dynasty football uh, players. Uh, Denzel Mims, wide receiver, the New York Jets, they took as a 6 3, uh, runs a, a 4 3 9 40. Uh, really good athlete, was a really good player at Baylor, a little bit raw. He gets drafted to a New York Jets team that is coached by Adam Gase, who will no doubt have no clue how to use him and will probably <laughs> seek to ruin him in his first couple seasons. But if you draft him in your dynasty league and just hold him, eventually Adam Gase will get fired, I promise. And a coach that actually knows how to use him will come in and he could have a lot of good value for you down the line. Uh, you're trusting the Jets are going to hire appropriately, Cody. <laughs> or they trade into somebody. <laughs> <that they> <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was phenomenal, fellas. Uh, appreciate you joining us there, Charlie. We uh, we will see you again here soon for a special episode. Uh, so if you if you enjoyed what Thurber's throwing out here, uh, be be prepared for more Charlie Thurber coming at you in the near future. But Charlie, thanks again. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Always a great time. And that'll do it for another installment of the Frosty Podcast. We are going to continue with our Frosty Live tour in quarantine with some special episodes coming up in the near future. Uh, but for Tony Perenni, I'm Derek Frost. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>